Escape from Plan A. Hey listeners, new week, new episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host for this episode, Chris, here with Jess. What's up, Jess? Hey, how's it going? Uh, I can't remember the last time it was just the two of us. So this is a very nice uh, nice occasion because uh, we should do it more often. But for whatever reason, it doesn't happen as often. Yeah. Um, All right. uh, yeah, it's a real treat. So I feel like I just talked to you because I listened to uh, unverified accounts like this this afternoon so it's so it's like it's it's a weird position mm-hmm. um yeah yeah i also listened to the the bonus pod you did with teen on the on the emperor's <laughs> high which i still don't quite understand what that proverb is supposed to mean oh okay so uh i mean the title is mangled i i got some hello can you hear me yeah like like when you say the uh heaven is fo- is high but the emperor is far away or vice versa what exactly is that supposed to mean um it's supposed to mean um uh, like um, like the English saying is uh, when the cat the cat's away, the mice will play. You've heard that one before, okay. right? Okay. Uh, so it's it, no, it but I can guess of, what it means. Yeah, it it kind of describes a kind of anarchic. Uh, it's kind of anarchic, but a zone of opportunity, mm-hmm. right? So, um, mm-hmm. the emperor is real and he is an authority, but he's not watching. Oh, um, I see. And the eye of heaven is not going to be on. Is not on you. So, you know, mm. given given that those two are still real, there's still a lot of opportunity um, that you can manipulate and use for your own ends. Mm-hmm. I see. So I always took it to mean kind of, I took it to kind of um, describe a certain kind of immigrant mindset when it comes to how they relate to America, uh, which mm, I, I think see, a lot of I people see. get wrong, especially like, uh, especially, you know, uh, like Asia watchers, right? People in the political establishment and, you know, the media establishment gets this wrong all the time because of their own chauvinism. Um, it's like, oh, they, you know, they left their repressive, you know, backwards communist, you know, dirty little holes and came to this gleaming land of opportunity because they <laughs> loved America and they, you know, they just love, you know, and it's it's chauvinistic and it's really like, no, like it, the stark reality of time meant that uh, for certain class of people, the things were just better. It would be easier to make it here than elsewhere. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's very little to do with ideology and everything to do with material reality. And people would try to forget that as much as possible to try to, you know, uh, to, to try to burnish their, to stoke their own egos over it. Like all these grateful brown people um, flocking over to like sweep their mm-hmm. floors um, and do the menial shit while they get to sit back and enjoy being, you know, grandiose Americans. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. So anyway, that's an episode for our Patreon subscribers. Great episode. And you can get access to the episode if you are not a subscriber by joining our Patreon. We got a ton of bonus episodes, like more than I can even count. And uh, just for five bucks, you get all that. Plus, you get access to our Discord. And I also want to announce that we are having our first ever Plan A live stream, which will be Tuesday, April 13th. Lucky 13. Um, we will put the YouTube link uh, in the show notes. And if you go on our Twitter or Facebook, we'll also announce it. But it'll, it'll pretty much be the whole crew. And, um, you know, it'll be like hanging out with us. So join us. It'll mean a lot to us if you come because it'll be our first time doing this. 
So I hope to see you there. So this episode, we are talking about this book that Jess and I have both read, War and Peace and War by Peter Turchin. Fascinating book. Um, and we'll delve into that. Uh, Jess, I am full of Asabia right now. Are you? Uh, uh, not really. Not not for America right now. <laughs> I, I'm I'm gonna need to see a little something something to to stoke my fire. Shall we? No, say. I mean between us though. I, yeah. I think we got a lot of Asabia between us. Yeah, or Plan yeah. A's got a lot of Asabia. I think so. That's gonna be my new dumb smart guy word for the That's next. That's gonna be month. your like gonna... civ civ four like <laughs> username, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. That's... <laughs> Yeah, it's such a cool word. And um, anyway, we'll explain what it means later. But first, before we get to the book and everything, um, let's talk about something that just happened on Twitter. Uh, I think it was today. Was it today? It may have been yesterday. I'm not sure. Jess, do you want to take us through what happened? I think I think it was a curmudgeonly Sunday night tweet thread. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. he just he, he just didn't want to go to work today. Decided to stoke some Twitter drama. <laughs> Well, like Honestly. Mondays are harder I, I, in some way when you work from home, I think, because it's just you don't at least don't have that uh, physical aspect of removing yourself from your home. But anyway, that's a, that's a mm-hmm. totally different topic. Just what happened on Twitter with I guess he's our friend, right? I mean, he's been on our pod a long time ago. Uh, TK, also known as uh, Ask yeah, a Korean. Uh, he, yeah, he tweeted something. Some people didn't take kindly. Uh, what the hell happened? Lines were drawn. You know, turf wars were stoked. <laughs> battles were fought. It was a tempest in a teacup, I tell you. Um, so okay, so so the guy in question that we're talking about, TK, um, more commonly known as Asko Korean, I think he's been he's one of the OGs of like Asian internet, right? I remember yeah, reading his I, stuff and- like ten, like I think I was in college when I first started reading his uh, blog. Yeah, like kind of like very early 2010s. Yeah, that's when yeah, I think so- I first discovered him. Yeah, yeah. So I was a couple years like earlier. So um, I don't remember what platform he was on, but I, I in my head, him and the uh, angry Asian man are kind of peers in that space. Yeah, but I think he's still relevant in a way that angry Asian man is not. Yes, which I gotta so, give credit to TK. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I mean, a lot of respect for the guy. Um. Personally, I mean, I, um, he's a he's a he's a uh, he's a smart guy he's obviously he obviously cares about these issues he's been doing he's been talking and thinking about this for like the better part of like two decades at the at, the, at this point um so you know you gotta put some respect on the man for that for the effort here um and he rarely like and i think he does provide a very valuable insight um he's he uh i don't know how he identifies but he's bilingual in korean and english I believe he was born in Korea, like came here for college and kind of like they go mm-hmm. like him and his family. They they basically live uh, in both countries. They, they go back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. So very uh, so very well rooted across both countries, South Korea and the United States. Um, and he takes that seriously. He takes that level of insight that he gets with uh, it. And he uses that to uh, um, to, I guess, uh, commentate on us korea relations and do social commentary across the two um so i learned a lot from him he's recently started uh i think it's called the blue roof um we'll link it because i like him um i still like him um (laughs) so um and so it's like a it's a weekly newsletter that he and his team they compile uh like news stories that are relevant to u.s korea relations and then and do their own analysis and it's made it's in english so it's very it's understandable to an english audience but it has a 
deeper level of insight that is completely missing from American mainstream media coverage on Asia issues, especially when it comes to Korea, mm-hmm. which is entirely uh, overshadowed by uh, by the U.S. insistence on uh, South Korea and Japan kind of being one unit geopolitically. Uh, mm-hmm. Annoying. Uh, so uh, I th- it's 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 worth checking out. So. I'm gonna say th- I'm just gonna say that to get that out of the way. This thread was dumb as hell. <laughs> TK, love you, man. Uh, if, in case you're listening, love you, man. Uh, come on the pod. Let's talk it out. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a couple of years. Yeah, we should have him back. Yeah. On. yeah. Um, so you know. Uh, you know, I, I caught the tail end of that this morning after like the morning crowd. The east, you East Coast people, just you, know, uh, you guys are on it. Um, it was already the tail end of it after people we were like, lives, I blocked so, him. Yeah. I blocked him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to block anyone who likes this shit too. It's like, uh, okay, so we already, we, <laughs> in six hours, we've already like come to the de- the messy denouement of this, uh, uh, this little saga. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, what are we at? What, what did he actually do? So he put out a, he put out a bunch of threads last night. Um, um, basically it started off really weird. Um, it's uh he was kind of like grumbling, like it, it, kind of an eye rolling, uh, sneer. I would, I, I think I, um, saying like all these, uh, you know, I think he's noticing, you know, second generation Asian Americans, um, and the resurgence of, a, of a national, more of a, uh, what do you call it? Like reclamation of uh, cultural and racial identity in recent yeah. times. I'll just read the like first few tweets so yeah, people okay. who don't know it might get a good idea. So it says, uh, Asian Americans, uh, quote unquote, reclaiming their Asian names will soon lead to them wearing some fucked up chipao or hanbok and shit for everyday wear, won't it? Uh, next tweet. And some cringe ass Chosun Dynasty Totnod and Qing Dynasty male ponytail plus shaved head combo. Quote, uh, Cast aside your assimilation name, my yellow brothers and sisters. My true name is not James. It's Kaptor, uh, end quote. Some cringe-ass corny name that no Korean parent gave to his or her child since the 1950s. Everything we do is derivative and sad and corny. I want to cheer for this movement, but I just can't bring myself to do it. And uh, you get the gist of it. Yeah, that's Yeah, so that's it goes it on from there. Um and reading to the end of it, it was both cor- it was both uh, corny and terrible. And there's also like a nugget of uh, of of a good insight in there too. So, um, so uh, hard to say. Yeah, I agree with when he says a lot of uh, like Asian American. The sense of like this, like Johnny and Janie come lately to our culture, and then you know the you know that old saying, um, you know, there's no zealot like a recent convert. Like a lot of these. Asian Americans who spent most of their lives being kind of ashamed of their culture, suddenly becoming super defensive over it. Yeah, they can be cringe. I I totally get him on that and agree with him on that point. But it's also weird that he would like. I think uh, the key to understanding TK is to read his uh, one of his uh, I think most popular pieces. This was back in 2011. This was in response to Wesley Yang's uh, kind of infamous Paper Tigers article for New York Magazine. And it's titled, Why You Should Never Listen to Asian-American, quote-unquote, Writers of Angst. And this is where he rails against the Wesley Yang types, you know, the the Asian-American snowflakes who think they're so much better than uh, every other Asian-American. And they pretty much, like a hot potato, pass off all the negative uh, Asian-American or Asian stereotypes onto them. Be like, I'm so special. I'm not like these cardboard cutout, robotic 
uh, monotone, whatever. Um, and I, the sense you get from this piece is the sense that like, he, he wishes that more people, more Asian Americans looked up to people like him as a model, someone who's able to blend both, uh, you know, Asia and Asian American. And he talks about how people like Wesley Yang get way too much of the spotlight and platform because the actually well-adjusted successful Asian Americans like himself uh, don't bother to crow about their achievements. Whereas the Wesley Yang types will um, undeservedly uh, act as if they're owed attention. So, I mean, I think to understand his mindset, I think this this uh, piece is key. Yeah, what was your take when you first saw it? You mean the, the tweet thread or this article? The tweet article? thread, yeah. I, mean, I remember that article too. It's a good um, article. I would... Yeah, uh, I would say the tweet. I the tweet thread. I, mean, I didn't particularly care, think it was warranted that much um, attention, but it did seem to rile up a lot of the people we, you know, hang out with on Twitter, like mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking. It was beautiful. Um, it wasn't. It was a perfect moment of unity. Everyone <laughs> I followed was like uniformly like, "Oh, uh, I think the ratio was worse than Andrew Yang." Honestly. Um, <laughs> but ratio king um yeah. yeah because it's like you know like at the core of it he, he's he's not wrong as i said in that there is this um overly defensive um like sincere but also almost insincere way that second generation asian americans will claim asianness as a way to overcompensate for our history of shunning asianness but it's also, why is this particularly necessary? I mean, if this was in reaction to, say, an overblown cultural appropriation incident, I could understand it. But it seems to have come out of nowhere, which uh, would, I think, is is the source of why do you have to bring this up right now? Especially with all this, like, anti-Asian violence going on. is You know, isn't it better that people err on the side of being kind of, like, too proud than not? So, you know, that was Yeah, I think take. it was a, it was a bit... Uh, I. Th- I- I think it was a bit ungenerous, honestly. Um, I can understand the gripe, you know, to someone who is steeped in both cultures to the extent that he is. And he is unique in that in that regard. Not many of us can claim that level of bilingual ability and mm-hmm. much less, you know, uh, I believe his wife is a Korean citizen um, and they split time between both countries. Um, not many of us have that level of uh, of access Right. Yeah, I would um, say most don't. Yeah, most don't. I certainly don't. It's been years since I was last in in Korea. Um, I'm 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 close to members of my family, but you know I can't claim to have been you know immersed in that environment. Um, so I thought I think coming from that perspective, that kind of very rooted, very uh, you know cosmopolitan attitude, that he leverages quite well when he's doing things like analyzing politics or bringing, lending insight into uh, into like social you know macro social dynamics that we ask uh, that we desperately need. Uh, I think he's he's great at that, but he. But when he's focusing on, you know, like uh, nobodies on Twitter, basically, just average people who don't have that level of uh, uh, access and insight, immersion, fluency um, that he has and, you know, and sees that struggle. And it's a very personal, it's a deep, vulnerable struggle with some deep human issues. And to see that and then brush it off as, God, you guys are so corny. Uh, You guys are, I mean, he he talks, he describes it as like self-orientalizing. 
um, to, you know, to ape aspects of Koreanness or Chineseness or, or some, or, you know, be ape the culture of the, the motherland, basically. Um, and he kind of ends kind of, and it's, it's kind of a anarchic ending. He's ba- you just are, so you don't have to like adopt the cultural trappings or anything or a name or just, you just, you're Korean because you are, which is, it's both like tautological and like, um, kind of like a, I, it's like per ideologically annihilating. Like you're just, you're not saying anything at that point. I think they understand yeah. that they're Korean. Um, that's in fact, that's the starting point for this journey. And it's going to be a little clumsy. Sure. But you know, I really do applaud people who are, who are trying. Um, and that's clearly, um, a need that people have. I don't think you should question that. It's not a thing that's up for debate. Um, I think, you know, talking to a lot of adoptees, um, helped, uh, hone my uh, thinking on this. Um, it's just like, I, I see a lot of adoptees getting questions. Like, why do you need to, you know, uh, pursue, you know, like, why do you, why do you want to, especially transracial adoptees who want to learn about their, you know, the, the birth, their birth culture. I don't know what the term is. Um, the social context they were pulled out of to be adopted in Western, uh, to Western, usually white people. Uh, and like, why? And I don't think it's a question that you need, to, you should be asking why about. Just like you wouldn't ask, like, like Chris, if you said, hey, I'm hungry, I wouldn't be like, why are you hungry? <laughs> and like, what, what? You just ate like eight hours ago. What's, what, what the fuck? Why are you hungry? Um, it's, mm. I think it's a base human need to understand, uh, to, to, un- to have these stories, to have an understanding of where you come from. Um, because we're all anxious about where we're going. And I think this leads into, this leads kind of nicely into what we're hopefully what we spend the bulk of our talk today on. Um, I think we're mm. in an anxious time culturally, socially, um, our, you know, America has not, has not come out of COVID well. Um, and I think a lot of us are feeling that. And I think, uh, I think seeing, you know, this budding like curiosity about, you know, reconnecting with the mother. I don't really even see that. I think TK misread that as some like budding ethno nationalism. Um, I mean, sure that could happen, but right now I just see it as a rejection of the sterility of, and the, um, fakeness of, uh, American culture. It's kind of mm-hmm. just rejecting and saying like, okay, they took a good hard look at what's what they are immersed in and they found it wanting. It's not enough. It's not good. It's not good as a, as a set of practices to live by um, that's, um, that nourishes human need. Um, and yeah. so, you know, if you're, if you're in that mindset, then, you know, I think it's pretty natural that if you, uh, if you are, say, the child of immigrants, that you would, you would, you would try to reach for what is most accessible to you, which is then exploring, um, you know, the culture that your parents left. Uh huh. Um, this seems very, this seems very natural to me. Um, so sneering at it as a, as, as self, you know, fetishization or, you know, aping Korean culture, I think it's completely off the mark. I think it's, uh, it's insulting. Um, and also a misunderstanding of what what the impulse actually is. 
it also it's it's kind of um he actually contradicts himself there um because he's saying like oh you you know you unsophisticated korean americans who don't know you know what a good hanbok is or what a proper a current name in korean is and you're gonna go with some like outdated korean name uh or something uh you don't know what it means to be korean because you're too far away from korea um and koreans presumably to know and then and then uh, kind of just loses his own plot and is like you're korean because you just are like which is it you you actually contradicted yourself here um <laughs> yeah uh, yeah like, i think you're right in the lack of generosity is like okay well it, the solution can't just be why can't you be more like me because that's you know that's not really a, a plan um but yeah i think you're right and i think it also leads us to Mr. Turchin's book, uh, which I think uh, we get, we let, let's talk about it. Um, so, how did you first hear about this book? Because I proposed it, uh, like, because I I read about this guy, and I, I particularly found his idea of, you know, a, a kind of like a society's downfall. One of the key ingredients being overproduction of elites, and I found that very interesting. I, I read up an article about him in the Atlantic, and yeah, I think that's we read the same one. Yeah, like it's it's can history predict future? It's a, it's a long form article. I think it was from yeah, like yeah, December yeah, that's exactly last year. It. Yeah, um, yeah they, exactly re- the they pushed it back to the front page recently, and that's and that's how I read it. Oh uh, really? Okay, yeah. Because I I asked you know the rest of the team, hey, you know I got this book, who wants to do it with me? And you were like, oh, I've already started reading it, so like, oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay, so, so now that we got it out of the way, so uh, how would you explain this to people who have no idea who this guy is? Um, what what's this book about? What was appealing is that he's a uh, he's by training he's a scientist, um, in biology, uh, spent the bulk of his career. Studied like beetles. Trying to predict the behavior of what water beetles? Yeah, some kind of yeah. like wood beetle. <laughs> yeah, some ma- but uh, uh, like uh, so he. I think he started. He honed that instinct in the, in the field, right? He's not doing you know individualist studies, right? I think the article talks about you know where uh, ecology or biology was was for about a hundred years just about like collecting beetles and studying an individual beetle under a microscope and building a collection of beetles. Yeah, and collecting um, useless facts, like how many legs mm-hmm. do they have, how many, I don't know, uh, whatever they have, yeah. Yeah, um, but, uh, and uh, and it sounded like he just kind of came to the end of, he just did not, uh, he didn't care about that so much. He came, he just came, came to the logical conclusion of that line of inquiry, and he was more interested in uh, group behavioral dynamics. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, I think that's, it was appealing because that's kind of what we're all doing right now. Uh, I see social media Mm -hmm. as kind of um, a very, a very, very coarse, not very sophisticated at all, uh, bulk and like a big engine. And we're all kind of just poking at the edges of this thing because we want to know what's coming next. We want to know how to predict Mm -hmm. what's coming. Um, Yeah. So this is I think we all feel we are in this turning point in history we don't know what it is but we feel like a lot of big things are happening and we don't know what is coming up next whether it's going to be good or bad i mean it probably looks like it's going to be bad but we we're not sure so uh you know thinkers like this books like this are interesting to us because it it tries to help us you know picture that mm-hmm yeah. Um, so he turned, so after he finished his inquiry on, uh, on beetles, on ecology, 
um, he, you know, he started, he started tinkering around. I, I loved the article on him. It just basically says, yeah, he just went to, you know, his department was like, yeah, I'm not going to do this shit anymore, but I'm still going to get paid. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much yeah, for tenure. He says, I've pretty much uh, solved Beatles. So I'm, I'm kind of bored of this. I'm going to move on to, I guess, the next, uh, you know, beetle-like species, which are humans and see how they uh, compare using the same skills and principles I've learned trying to, you know, predict, you know, which beetle is going to eat up which forest. Um, yeah. So, um, and, you know, that was appealing because, um, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I do. Um, not, not on this grandest scale, of course. So. Yeah. So with this book, he's trying to answer some fundamental questions about like one, what causes certain people to create these big nation empires slash nation states and two what causes them to inevitably collapse or decline and um there's a lot of fascinating insights i mean he starts off with you know rome and he moves on to you know post-rome europe and also um other places like you know the islamic empire and uh you know some like asian empires and stuff like that and and it's fascinating because you can apply it, the same principles apply to America. But before we get to that, I was throwing around this word asabia before. Uh, so w- the definition of asabia is essentially just the, the ability of a society to come together to achieve some kind of greater collective good. And he talks about how the, the, the key ingredient to any great you know, society, empire, nation, etc. Is, is high this high asabia, which he uses because it's a term used by this great um, Arab philosopher of the Middle Ages, Ibn Khaldun. And uh, and he talks, and which I found a little bit kind of pessim, kind of ominous actually, is that you, the, the way that it arises is you need to have pretty much like a, a bloody frontier in which two uh, very starkly different ethnic groups are competing with each other and it's only through this process where you have a clearly defined us and them where you develop a kinship with the people around you and also conversely kind of like a hatred of the enemy that allows you to put aside petty differences and uh you know have some sense of collective uh good so i mean he he brings up uh, rome's fight first i think i guess against the etruscans that's like very early rome but then later, mainly against the Gauls, which allows them to develop the necessary skills and mentalities to create this great empire. So, I mean, what were your thoughts when you read that? Uh, I mean, I'm kind. Of, I I love I love reading about history. So it was fun to see. I had read a lot. I read a lot about the Roman Empire. Uh, I've been trying to read more about Mon- the Mongols and the Persians. Um, there's uh there's actually a fantastic book if uh, you want just more like a narrative uh history uh that's more actually more from a, uh like an economy economist standpoint it's uh, the roman empire and the silk uh silk routes um i'll mm-hmm. make sure that gets into the show notes it's an it's an amazing book actually it uh basically okay. plots the rise of rome and china uh, parallel to each other they were they were somewhat concurrent actually and they were engaged in a tremendous amount of trade but in most tellings of history they're treated very separately mm-hmm. um so um so it was, it was really good to see like to have them laid side by side as trading partners uh, and seeing how their fortune how they how they fared 
in uh, in tension with each other and in cooperation with each other. Uh, I thought this one was a, it's a it's it's a big book. This is a this is a very dense book. It covers a lot of ground. Um, Silk Road book, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, but also War and mm-hmm. Peace and War. So this is a this is a very dense book as well. Yeah. Um, but I found I, it I very readable though. So uh, readers, don't don't be scared off this. I, I found it very it's very entertaining. Um, yeah, he's a good writer. It may writer. be very full of information. Yeah, yeah. It makes so it very he, do, he does a really good job at boiling down um, some very complicated points of history into a good story, so that you're able to follow. Sometimes it's like I can't I I can't follow even the names, uh, so I lose the plot pretty quickly. Well, speaking of great stories, I. Um, I like I kind of knew the story of uh, the Battle of Tudorburg Forest, but when I read about that, I just thought it was such a. So, in, in case uh, listeners don't uh, don't know, the story of this is that there's this um, captured Germanic uh, boy who who grows up as, as a hostage of of the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, he's treated very well, and he's like basically made like like a noble and everything. Uh, but he is um, then. Uh, commissioned to essentially be like their go-to guy who will, who will lead them through all like the, the secret pathways through through Germania so they can defeat the the, the you know the, the barbarians uh, there but he turns on them because he has plotted his whole life to uh, be a true leader of his people because he comes from uh, you know like nobility from there and you know I I made a joke that you know if Kaiser Kohl was Ar- Arminius he was he spent his whole life ingratiating himself into the American foreign policy establishment only abiding his time until he could lead them through uh, our figurative Tudorburg forest and unleash uh, us barbarians upon them. So anyway, so uh, yeah, that's very a, readable. That's nice, that's nice fan fiction. I got to say <laughs> it's very nice. I'll go to Wattpad and, and write my own Kaiser Co fan fiction. <laughs> not at all creepy. Nope. Not, not, not even a little bit. Um, it kind of reminds me of a, I don't know if Teen has said this on the pod before, but um, he talked about this a few times, um, like just how descendants, you know, his theory on what the descendants of the KMT are, uh, you know, what drives those people. Um, I guess the most prominent would be um, Elaine Chow, the former secretary of uh, what was mm-hmm. it, transportation. Um so she's a wealthy woman from Taiwan, um, descended from like direct like KMT high ranking officials, um, and his whole his whole theory was kind of entertaining. It's you know they're they're kind of in a ti- in, they're in a little uh, time warp. Um, they were sent over as kind of this bigger project to reconquer China and all that. Except like history passed them by. That moment is gone forever. Now they still have the mission, but like no home base. Um, I thought that was an interesting yeah. Um, not not that I'm giving it too much credence. It's just fun as a uh, as a little bit of a uh, a thought experiment because you know as the children of immigrants, that's to some extent or another, that's kind of what that's the a little bit of the space we have to navigate in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the world our parents live. So, this, so you know this. Yeah, okay. This is a little bit of a tangent. So let's get back to the actual book. <laughs> so th- this concept of Asabi really just gripped me because. I think we can all agree it's very low in America right now. Nobody believes in America, especially after COVID. Nobody believes in our government. People don't really believe in each other. Uh, it seems that uh, with each passing day, society is either becoming more atomized or if you feel any group solidarity, that group is 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 just like fracturing into smaller and smaller groups based on 
um, you know, your identity, what, you know, gender, sexual orientation, class, um, all that. So the thing that concerns me, though, and something we talk a lot about on Plan A is there is kind of this, the obvious way uh, to regain that is to find a common enemy. And right now there's no more obvious common enemy than China. And we've already seen that with uh, just a teen tweeted about this recently about how, hey, it seems like we're passing these great infrastructure bills and public assistance bills and hooray that it seems like we've suddenly, it doesn't, I don't think it's because we've suddenly become more generous with our people. I think it's more because we, we realize, hey, we can't, we can't let those chinks have a better a life than us. We can't let them have a better a train system than us or whatever. And, and that's what's galvanizing us. And it's good in the short term because, hey, we'll get some much needed upgrades, uh, you know, God willing to the MTA maybe and other things. But in the <laughs> long run, it does point to uh, a very potentially violent uh, situation, right? I mean, that's the fear, right? Um, concurrent mm-hmm. with that, the Pentagon has, you know, a, a colossus of a budget this year, $753 billion as of this year, which is higher than it's ever been under Trump, by the way. So yeah. um, did, did you see that Fareed Zakaria clip that was going around Twitter? Yeah, I saw that. Um, I Is he still yeah. alive? Does he still have a job? Wait, Fareed Zakaria? Yeah, he's not old, right? Okay. Yeah, I mean... I hope he's. I, I I thought that was a that was a baller clip, and it's spot on. He saw right through that shit. Oh, are you saying someone might have assassinated him for saying that? Yeah, or I mean, I'm, I'm joking. Oh, okay. But like, it's like wow. <laughs> no, I thought you, you thought he was. I thought you thought he was like 90 years old. Uh, and he's oh, like, wow, no, no, he's no. Still no. Like, <laughs> like, but that makes like, sense. Uh, <laughs> did he did he fall out of a did he fall out of his window or anything? Just want to make sure he's okay. Um. Uh, so for people who haven't seen a clip, he talks about how, uh, you know, America keeps acting as if China's uh, nipping our heels in terms of military spending, but it's clearly not the case. We're like at least like, I don't know, 50 times uh, greater than them in terms of spe- expenditure. Uh, and that's not even counting allies. If you count allies, we're like way ahead in terms of just the, the sheer number of like hardware we have. So it's all just lies to act as if we need to bulk up our military yeah so it's all it's all drummed up and it's all a uh, a ruse by people you know within that that complex that military industrial complex uh to secure more money for stuff we don't need to wage a war we can't we can't fight um, so at this mm-hmm. point, you know, we're, the U.S. is spending more than uh, the next 12 countries combined on defense. Yeah, which so is like is unprecedented in world obscene. history. Yeah. Un- absolutely unprecedented. And we have world ending weapons. Uh, mm-hmm. So this ends badly. Um, I think there's a, I mean, and the thing is, despite all of that, um, f- fighting a war with China is not one that the US is sure to win. Spending doesn't correlate mm-hmm. to, uh, to victory as the U.S. found out because, you know, well, how did Afghanistan go? How did, how did Iraq go? Yeah. Um, yeah, so- and, and that's the thing that uh, captured my interest was that after 9-11, there was, for the first time in, a, I think, a long time, a, a sense of national unity, national purpose. And what did the U.S. do with it? 
not only squandered it in that they just did something that didn't really help us, but actively undermined our both national and international sense of goodness, uh, which is, you know, the war in Iraq. You know, it'd be one thing if you just did nothing with that opportunity, but you went out of your way to do something that just made you look horrible. And there's actually a, a thing in this book where it talks about, um, I forget the guy's name, but he is, you know, he's a guy like in the Middle East and he's actually, I think he's like on the verge of becoming like an Islamic extremist, but he's, um, you know, he, he first for a little while he decides, you know what, my family's more important. Then he hears the stories coming out of like Abu Ghraib and that's what uh, turns him into an extremist. So you went out of your way to turn this thing that could have really uh, turned uh, fortunes around this like flagging national sense of purpose and identity, which I guess since maybe the Cold War, or maybe you can even go back and say World War II, it had been on the decline. And that's another thing this book really helps you understand because I think uh, Americans have a very, because the country is so young, we have such a short understanding of history. We, we think everything happens in an instant. Like, uh, when we see like a decline of a empire or nation, we think uh, it, it's like it blows up. It, we think of it as like you know Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan surrendering. It's like the end of you sign a treaty and that's the end of that. But there's like you know like he talks about you know the fall the fall of Rome starting somewhere between like the 280s when you know like I don't know like one of those Gothic tribes sacked Rome to the fall of Constantinople. That's like a thousand years, and that's. And that's like, a, we can't even, can you imagine a thousand years? I can't even imagine that time, right? No. And you, you talk about like, say, the fall of the, the decline of the Ottoman Empire. It took, it took like four or five centuries. That's a really mm-hmm. long time. So that's older than America itself. So, it, it, you know, history takes place on a very large time scale. And I don't think we quite grasp that. Yeah. So that book was really good. And it uh, kind of, um, I felt more, uh, it places the reader in a particular, it, it, it situates the reader in a particular moment in time. Um, he talks about the concept of a secular cycle, uh, which mm-hmm. is just basically the life cycle of an empire, right? Um, so the first- or, or rather, I think it's just like ups and downs that are inevitable, you know, kind of like a business cycle, like a boom and bust thing. An empire will have boom and bust. An empire will survive several secular cycles uh and um you know even an empire in decline can have like a a peak in in the in the midst of it but let's say you know centuries later when you look at the history you'd be like oh yeah that decline started in x point and i think the fear with americans is that we are in this irreversible decline that probably started let's say the 70s we had this kind of this weird period maybe from the late 19th century peaking to the 50s where we were on this rise, then we peaked, and we've been kind of on a slide since, and we don't know how to reverse it. Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's that's about where I, my head's at, um, and where I think the mood is at nationally. Uh, there's the people who are in denial of all of that, you know. Um, but even on you know even on quote you know there's the liberal side right, which I think is in a bit of a den- denialist phase. But I think the you know the right is actually a lot more clear headed about this. Like the slogan for Donald Trump was make America great again. It's fundamentally nostalgic. It's backwards yeah. looking. Um, and the closest, I mean, the Democratic counterpart uh, to that would be like Obama, whose, whose whole slogan was hope. 
right? A kind of anodyne, forward-looking, vague, um, just gives you the warm fuzzies that things could be better. Uh, the right wing was much clearer about uh, where it was situating itself in the uh, in this you know imperial life cycle. It's saying we have cu- we have passed the zenith of American greatness, but. The thing, uh, but what I'm promising is that we can roll the clock back. We can rechannel everything that went into that the big rise up, and we can still we can you know engineer another rise at, instead of having to accept a fall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's you know I think it's very descriptive. It's 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 um it's good to point out that this book was actually written I think about ten years ago. 2006 uh, I believe yeah so more than 10 years ago so um it's uh so I feel like history is kind of validating him uh, and he didn't have to wait very long either for that to for that to come around uh so he wrote this long before yeah. uh the the last you know election cycle or anything he's writing about something that's a lot bigger than just the the four-year election cycles of America basically um and he's trying to find mm-hmm. commonalities between uh, other civilizational states um, which I appreciated because a lot of times, um, if you just read a history by historians, they'll treat everything as a, as an exception, right? They'll, they're talking, I yeah. think he, he points that on his book, right? Um, the tendencies for historians to emphasize the unusual, the outlying stuff and, uh, and not, not see, not look at the commonalities. So they'll, so, mm-hmm. um, so it'll be entirely focused on, and the the question is already kind of asked for them. They're writing this book to answer this question, like why was Rome great, right? Something like that. So not a very objective survey of history, honestly. So I appreciate this approach. We're actually trying, like, we have all of these different empires across time um, and history uh, across all corners of the earth. What actually was the same between them? Um, and I thought that was a very uh, that that. So I don't want this to be an actual like book review where we talk just about the book because uh, it's it's worth a read. I don't think any like hour long discussion does it justice, honestly. Um, the yeah, so like he doesn't talk much about America. Towards the end, he talks about like the the various empires uh, right now: America, China, the European Union, and Russia potentially. And he talks about the uncertain paths and also certain paths he thinks uh, a collision between us and china is inevitable whereas the eu and russia is uh, less certain but he doesn't talk much about america so why don't we fill in that and see what uh we can see in america that is applicable to all the things he talks about here so one of the things that really caught my attention is this idea of overproduction of elites and uh he he, uh, one example he gives is that in the 14th century, after like maybe two or three centuries of of great great times for for France, you know, during the High Middle Ages, they suddenly hit the century of just total um, misery. And you know, there are various factors to it. One of which is you know the, the the Black Death, but that also just made things worse. It wasn't like it suddenly made this great situation. Uh, it also like made some things but better. One of the things he talks about that. is that, that was an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and one of the reasons things were getting so bad was that there's just too many nobles, and that meant that uh, it creates this um, competition among the upper classes to extract more and more uh, like wealth and blood from the lower classes because they want to keep up their lifestyle. Nobody wants to fall out, have the disgrace of falling out of the upper classes. And then there's all sorts of uh, kind of intra-class 
intranational wars. Uh, you know, whether it's like nobles killing other nobles or you know, or whatever. And then even on on an international stage, like I mean, you hear about stories of of the Hundred Years' War. Like, how did these like English peasant bowmen beat all these French knights at Agincourt or Crecy or all these places? And you know, the British propaganda is all oh, we're just like so much more braver and all that but then you realize it's because a lot of nobles the only reason they were in that war was for the booty they wanted to capture other english nobles so they could ransom them so they could get the money to throw parties and shit so they weren't listening to their generals on on how to carry out the best tactic. No, they were just like oh yeah i'm gonna rush them because i want to get my dibs on that guy or whatever and you know the, the they just do stupid shit and then they end up dying or getting captured. So it, it's just bad all around. And then you think of America now. And the thing that I thought of most, especially when you're on Twitter and stuff, is like all that cancel culture stuff is, I think, obviously uh, a byproduct of this overproduction of elites. You've got a lot of people who want uh, these like high status jobs in these very precarious industries, namely like entertainment, media, uh, culture industries. And they're trying to elbow a competition. That's why they're like trying to hunt you down for what you said on uh, Friendster in in 2005 and trying to trying to get you out of your spot so they can take it. And I mean, obviously, in, in the big scheme of things, I'm, that might seem silly, but it's symptomatic of of a society that's produ- producing too many elites. And the problem is, what's the solution? Like creating a more stratified society where you have like a learned elite class, and nobody else is allowed to enter. I don't. Know. It, it's very difficult, right? Uh, yeah, and I think his uh, his taking up more. This is kind of a. Uh, I mean, he's trying to take the position of a dispassionate social scientist, right? Uh, he's yeah. just describing cycles um, uh, to as the reader, um, and I feel like I'm in the wrong <laughs> the wrong half of this life cycle. Um, it takes a kind of fatalist. Um, it's hard to resist a bit of fatalism. Like this is inevitable. Um, I think to some degree it will be inevitable. Um, so rolling it back. So elite re- uh, overproduction um, is one facet, uh, one thing that he notices among uh, among empires in a state of decline. Um, let's just talk about let's just talk about all of them. So uh, he talks about elite overproduction as in just a sh- too many people at the very top. Um, inequality. So uh, he points out that uh, empires in their um, integrative phase, when they're building up to their peak, uh, they tend to be more egalitarian. Um, There has to be a more communalism, um, more sense of shared purpose uh, and equality in order to get everyone to pull together in the same direction to achieve a common goal. Um, Yeah, he talks about like the early days of the or earlier days of the Roman Republic in which you had senators and consuls and all these people who would be like on the front lines of the military. Like you, like I think he talks about the battle of Cannae wiped out like over half of the Senate because these Mm -hmm. weren't, you know, fat cats sending the peasants into battle. They were actually fighting on the front lines of there and the wealth um, inequality was much lower, uh, like kind of this ascetic austere lifestyle was, was like was respected you were ex- it, w- it was considered better to live a humble lifestyle rather than you know eating grapes while in your silk robes or whatever they did you know at the at the height of the decadent <laughs> empire right so he talks about uh, so he describes you know the um the rise and fall of Mo- the mongolian 
uh, Empire and the Russians before, you know, pre-imperial mm-hmm. Russia uh, and how they kind of dovetailed with each other. Um, like in the 1300s, the Mongols basically just crushed Russia, just plowed right through. And basically, yeah, because the Russians had no land. sense of collective identity. They, yeah, they were all split into little fiefdoms. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. makes a good point that you know this actually in the in the big picture it was super irrational and led to you know their conquer, um, just getting annihilated by the Mongols. But if you looked at the individual behavior of each of the princes of these principalities, they actually acted very rationally. They were individually too weak to mount a defense on their own. So mm-hmm. they were all waiting for someone else to do it. Um, and so the, the and the Mongols, who were just a very coordinated force, managed to just sweep right through them because they were too they were too un they they could not unify. Fast forward mm-hmm. a couple, like 200 years, and then you see uh, the Russians who have been dealing with two, uh, you know, two to 300 years of just constant assault, um, yeah. enslavement, you know, just, just mass humiliation by the Mongols. They had that shared purpose. They wanted to kick the Mongols. They wanted to kick the Mongols out and reclaim their land. So they had that. They found that unifying purpose, and uh, and by that point, the Mongols had descended into uh, like decadent uh, princedoms themselves, with a ton of infighting, and so the Russians were able to push back on all of that uh, and retake their land. Uh, basically, drove the Mongols back out. And then later, when uh, you know conquests of like uh, Siberia and all that, a lot of those people were uh, Muslim. So there was also the the religious thing, which is which is a big thing um, mm-hmm. that he points out. It, it is that thing that more so than um, things like say ethnicity or race, the advantage of religion is that it can transcend all that. It just like hey, mm-hmm. we may be we may look different, we may come from different places, but hey, if your God is my God, we can we can have this like asabia together. Yeah, some some amount of shared something that's that's very deep, very fundamental, and that can unite across differences, right? So religion is one. Um, and I imagine, and I think this is where culture comes in. So this is the tie-in to you know, uh, you know, TK's thread here, uh, where he's talking, where I think he goes <laughs> a little wrong by saying, um, by trying to by by saying that you know the children of these these second generation Asian Americans then they're too cut off from they can only ape uh, the trappings of Korea they can never be true authentic Koreans, um, and that's fair that's actually a fair that's a fair assessment. Um, problem is you know well what what's what's bad about that, right? If culture I think I. My theory on culture is that it is a set of practices for a group of people for a certain time. It's not. Uh, it's not. An, a, it's not a set of practices or things. It's tied to people. It's tied to place, and it's tied to a time. Um, if any one of those things changes, the culture changes as well. It has to. Otherwise, if it doesn't keep up with the times, it gets wiped out. Um, so in that sense, like, are where? So he's basically saying we cannot be authentic Koreans because we are outside Korea. I, I, whatever those Koreans are doing over there, sure. Um, I am, I am disconnected from that. It doesn't mean that I have nothing. These practices have come with me, uh, and they have to adapt to. They have to adapt to how I live. Um, I mean, just a, a shallow example would be like the way my family does Chuseok, right? The Korean Harvest Festival. 
um, which I think is common across, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. East Asian yeah. cultures. But um, it typically falls in like late September. Um, and in Southern California, late September is like 110 degrees. Mm-hmm. It, nobody's in the mood to be eating like autumn food in the middle, like when it's hundred <laughs> degrees outside. So we actually, we actually just do, do chuseok around chuseok like Thanksgiving. Or- yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. we suffered through that, but it's like this, like mom, it's 115 degrees. We yeah, can't do We don't want to do eat this. a hot, hot soup in that day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we still do that, but we push it closer to like, like Thanksgiving. Right. Um, which makes more sense. It's mm-hmm. cooler then. There's already another. There's another. You know, harvest-based. Uh, you know, holiday-ish uh, to celebrate. So we made that work for us, right? Um, would he then say that I'm? You know, I I'm aping Koreanness. Uh, if you're being ungenerous, sure. But it's also like adapting a culture to suit my time and my place. Um, and I think this yeah. is what this uh, what this like group instinct towards reconnecting with heritage is about right now. It's uh, the appeal of culture is saying like this is time tested. And I think I talked about this in in the previous pod with teen. So apologies for repeating myself here, but um, I think it's a bunch of uh, people realizing that America is fairly hollow and does not does not have the answers to the big problems. Um, so it's mm-hmm. it's very tempting and natural, I think, to try to learn about a different set, a different set of practices, philosophies, customs that did carry uh, a people through. Um, yeah. It also locates like, like, are we supposed to phone home to be Korean? Uh, I th- I mean, the answer is going to be a little bit yes. I don't think. Uh, um, uh, if 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 your instinct is uh, that you want to reconnect, then you have to reconnect. You have to access. You have to get back to where uh, the bulk of Koreans are being Korean, which is not going to be here. Um, but it's also it's also difficult to say. Well, if you don't do it exactly the way they do it, which is the way they're living for their moment in time. It's very different from what it was 100 years ago, even 50 years ago. Certainly no Korean 500 years ago looks at Seoul and is like, yeah, I get this. Um, right? This all morphs and changes. Mm-hmm. And that's I, everyone just has to make peace with that. This is where that authenticity conversation falls completely short. They have to adapt. Um, where am I going with this? So this is part of this, like, this concept of like... As, like asabia then right this unifying principle that you that cuts across people and gives them some shared understanding of the world and provides a common purpose so the common purpose that i'm seeing here in this in this uh in this uh kind of general mood that i'm picking up um is a is a rejection of some of the things that we are collectively finding uh to be insufficient for our needs right now uh, where that's ultimately going to end, I don't. I don't know. It's not my job to know, and I don't think anyone can predict that. But it's very heartening to me that uh, it seems like a lot of us have been thinking along those same terms. That's a unifying principle. Uh, I feel like if I pick up a conversation with a, an Asian person that I've never met before, I feel like I actually have a stronger understanding of where they're coming from and what they want out of life than I did even like a year ago. I think that's big. Mm-hmm. Um, you took it to its conclusion. You want to storm the gates. I don't know if we're quite there yet. Um, but it's uh, it's nice to feel that sense of like community. 
it's also important to look beyond what the most uh, visible expressions of these uh, whatever, like these markers of identity are. Because there's a part that uh, I found very interesting where he talks about uh, Nestorianism, which I think is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, uh, recorded heresies in the in the Christian church. And I always found it hilarious just because of how seemingly pointless it is because Nestorianism uh, is, is the idea that Christ had like two natures, like the divine and, and the human, and then the uh, opposing side, the, the monophysite said, no, 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 Christ, that, that was like one. He, he had like a godlike and human f- essence, but they, they were one. And you're like, who the fuck cares, right? And then uh, I think there's like a middle ground, uh, like the, the Chalcedonism or whatever, that tried to uh, get oh, a yeah. middle ground. But this book explains, that's not really the point of this. The point of this is that these were things that various uh, ethnic groups in, in kind of that whole like Byzantine Empire area clung to in order to express their sense of collective identity so i forget who be- uh, believed what but i think let's say like the monophysites were based on mostly out of north africa like syria and egypt and then the um the chalcedon people were more in the balkans and then the uh, nestorians were more in in the persian uh, side of, of the empire so w- when you see these asian americans squabbling over little things like uh whatever they are you know my name and things like that uh, the, the key thing is not to criticize well that name is nobody uses that name anymore that, that's not really the important thing is like why are they doing this what are they actually what is this an actual expression of the deeper desire for right mm-hmm. yeah and the desire here is for uh it's a rejection of uh it's a rejection of um the culture that uh, that is that is no longer serving us people have a right mm-hmm. to do that it's good and healthy to do that. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think Plan A started when because we were collectively kind of poking around the edges of that. Like we're discontent, we're not happy. Something's clearly wrong, and we're just going to talk it. We're going to try to figure out what is wrong. Um, and I'm I'm glad that we kind of engaged on that uh, that process because I don't I I, I think uh, 2020 would have hit me a lot harder if I hadn't had that little bit of a. Uh, head start and kind of uh sensing that something was wrong so i'm glad we did that Mm -hmm. uh this is kind of a culture building exercise as well simply saying you know the 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 pond we got stuck in it the ph is off it's not it's not working for us anymore (laughs) so um (laughs) and i don't think it's i don't i and, and where people like tk get it wrong is i don't think uh anyone um, who wants to reclaim an Asian name um, or, you know, wear a hanbok. First of all, where did he get that example from? I've never, I don't know what he's even referencing. I've never seen someone try to, I've never seen like a tweet or the TikTok or whatever of an Asian American wearing a crappy hanbok or something. I've seen like the really highly produced like TikToks from China where mm-hmm. they're wearing hanfu. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're gorgeous. Um, but uh-huh. I never saw the, what he's talking about, like where they're just going to be wearing shitty polyester crap to work. I don't know what he's talking <laughs> about. I literally don't know what he's talking about. Um, but I mean, but also what what's wrong with that? I don't think we talk about how awful jeans are enough. <laughs> the thing about that yeah. th- that clothing, it looks it looks comfortable. It looks good. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure why we decided the denim um is our national costume that's it's awful it's are we mining for gold in san francisco just leave it behind 
Yeah. Maybe it's this fear that, um, you know, at some point, uh, America will have to get, get its act together and form this, you know, sense of greater national calling that all people, regardless of race, religion, uh, gender, sexual orientation, whatever, um, you know, it, it's like we've had the luxury of of, of fighting over these stupid uh, fights, uh, you know, for the last couple of decades, because, you know, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union or whatever, we haven't had a real challenge. Yeah, we, we pretended there was this impending caliphate coming out of those uh, like Al Qaeda idiots. But, you know, I don't know if anyone really believed that. But now we, we might actually have some some real challenges up ahead. And if these, uh, you know, childish Asian Americans cosplaying as uh, dynasty warriors or some shit, uh, is that going to leave Asian Americans out? Maybe that's what people like TK are a bit afraid of, that we're not going to be part of this greater American project because, as I said, we have these racial insecurities that'll make us go to the other extreme and make us believe in this fictional Asia. I don't know. What do you think? Um, for him, if we're if we're trying to get into his head, I think he or just is generally, just let, let's to flex. not let's not like okay. Uh, more generally, I don't know if the worry there is that uh, um, like some bat call is going to go out and going to activate all of us like Manchurian candidates, second generation <laughs> Manchurian candidates. I'm not sure if that's the that's the worry. I think it's a, a worry of. Um, I think it's a. I, I think generally it's a fear of annihilation, either a violent one where we're just actively snuffed out, or you know a slower, more invisible annihilation over time. And this is where the anxiety is over things like, uh, like miscegenation, um, all of those. I and these are. I, I want to say like I understand the anxieties here, but um, but we just have to be able to grip it, but also deal with it. Uh, and not not uh, not try to turn into something that it's not, or try to pretend it doesn't exist, because uh, I think it's a real it's a real situation. So um, uh, Asian Americans in America, and I um, and I'm going to include Canada too in that. Uh, sorry, <laughs> um, I, so there's about 20, 20 million uh, Asian Americans uh, in America. I don't know what the population is in Canada. Um, what is, like Let's five just say million? five million. million. I'll, I'll, I'll just throw out a random okay, number. Okay, so twenty-five million, give or take, um, and I think that's going to be it. Um, we know that immigration isn't, you know, has has basically stopped uh, from from Asia. Um, so these ranks, this these ranks aren't going to swell from immigration. Um, the tide isn't going to turn either. Like, why would anyone uh, in say East Asia uh, uproot their entire lives to come here anymore? They wouldn't. Um, so, um, so this is it. Yeah. We've got our fear of annihilation, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I see a lot of people and I think it's, it's well-intentioned, but it's a problem that, you know, we, um, it's a problem with no solution. I think it's a very, it's, it's, it's not a happy one. I think I find some personal sadness in this. So about 25 million Asians, assuming the bulk of us just stay here and we don't, you know, like return home or not sent back or whatever, this is going to be it. This is the, this is, this is the presence of, of um, people from Asia represented in uh, the U S and Canada. Um, whatever happens comes from this. Yeah, we've got like a Taiwan sized nation within North America. Yeah. Uh, all you know, spread out um unevenly um i mean 
So integration, like uh, socially, culturally, genetically, like that's just will happen uh, over time. Uh, I don't think it's a force that can really be uh, overcome or or necessarily one that's bad even, right? Like, you know, those, like, you know, people who get a little too, uh, um, a little bit too extreme in my view, uh, being like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not showing my, like, I'm going to raise American kids on American soil, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to show them American media. I'm going to make sure that they are, you know, as Chinese as I can make them or, you know, as Asian as I can make them, depending on where you, what your ethnicity is, what your nationality is. Um, and they're going to be, you know, we're, I'm going to preserve this in the, in, in my kids. And it's like, I understand, like, I think it's good as a practice. I think kids should uh, be, be immersed and grow comfortable with that. Um, where, where I feel like it's a, it's a bit of a, it's, it's a bit of a, a pointless fight is almost like uh, uh, wanting to make like, I don't know how to put this, like trying to preserve the stock across generations to kind of preserve this like bubble of, of, of Asian people who are visibly Asian culturally and socially Asian across time, just in a Western context, that won't happen. This, ev things will change. Yeah. Or I, I think, I think the greater question in here is, does it even matter? We've got a s relatively small, as I said, Taiwan-sized nation in North America, does it even matter? Because uh, I think Asian Americans, uh, especially like second generation Asian Americans, um, grew up with this, I think probably very American mindset that we are the vanguard of the world. What we do determines kind of like what the rest of Asia uh, is. We're like, we're like the bellwether. Like if we do this, the rest of Asia will follow. So we must stand strong for Asia. The reality probably is it doesn't matter. Like we it could be, we could be wiped out, and it would be sad. You, you know, like mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't be good. But as I said, you you weigh the the balance of just the number, the population where like Asian say culture is produced and all that. Like Asian America, maybe it doesn't matter. That's I think that's our deepest fear. Well, we don't really matter. Yeah, that's that's a fear. I think the reality is different, but I think that is the worry, right? And I think this is what this is what's what. Uh, bubbles up in all of those, you know, um, representation matters, um, those calls for representation, just to be seen, right? To be seen as having been included, just to not be forgotten, to not to not feel like it's, uh, um, we don't matter, or that uh, yeah. it's point. it was pointless. The, the question the is, though, like, matter to whom, right? Because I think um, the, the thing with Minari was, was so, was what, why it was so important is because, like, like oh we don't want to be forgotten but it's not like what forgotten by koreans no not really it's, it's basically just ourselves we just don't want to be forgotten to ourselves and we are in the big scheme of things a small nation and almost nobody else relates to us well maybe other like diasporic asians and the uk and and uh, abroad elsewhere but it's not like asians are looking to asian americans for anything if they ever did they certainly are not now and like who 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 do we think is watching us besides ourselves, right? I mean, it's having to it's having to integrate here. Uh, oddly enough, it's a it's a call to integrate by being exceptional, right? Uh, leveraging difference, ironically, to be more accepted. Um, 
so i mean we call you guys do a good job skewering that you know analyzing it on unverified accounts so i don't need to go into it here check them out go check them out everyone. oh well, thank you um <laughs> But so but I'm just saying that I understand the psychological need. I just think we need to do a better job understanding it and not taking mm-hmm. it at face value. Um, understanding the need is simply, you know, it's a very human need to feel like your life and your presence has mattered. Uh, oh, for I think sure. for it's us, we carry a yeah. bur- I think as a second generation, the first thing, and I, I mean, you, you ask this question quite a bit, actually, like, why the hell is all of our representation so sad, so depressing? um so like so mopey um and i re- i don't I would like, say it like needy i think needy is, is yeah, the needy perfect is a good word one. to describe it yeah uh i think needy is a good word like uh for it um it's very melancholy um my my feeling is we're just gonna have to get over this phase because i think the first thing that happens when you uh do some come to some actualization as the child of immigrants is you are confronted the first thing you have to do is deal with loss because um it, you have to deal with loss. It's not. Uh, it's not gain. And I think we, this is where the talk on assimilation falls short as well, um, because it's always framed as we are not assimilated enough into. And we know we're talking. We're assimilated enough to like into like white dominant culture. But I think the first step to that is actually acknowledging what we have lost by 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 virtue of just being here. Um, we can see we can see how chaotic and traumatic that that uh, separation was from the motherland because our parents our parents were right there. We see that through our parents. We can see through them. Um, we can see through them what exactly we we have had we have to let go of to begin something new here. And I think there is a collective mourning process that uh, that that. Uh, that is happening across media. It's very, it's all focused on like childhood traumas, right? A lot of uh, mm. exploration of like immigrant drama. And, you know, the two, two of the bigger like um, uh, movies on this, The Farewell and Minari. I don't think it's coincidental that um, these are two movies where the bulk of the spoken language was not English. Mm-hmm. Um, now we can talk about like, you know, uh, bias on the part of the studios and creators uh the white gaze all of that but it makes sense to me that this is kind of where we have to start we have to come to grips with what we have what we have lost and what we're going to lose shortly when the gen when our parents generation slowly uh slowly goes away um mm-hmm. we are cut off at that point uh, like i'm 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 close with my cousins but you know if that generational tie, uh, you know, which is my parents to, you know, family back home, once that's severed, I don't know how how connected I will continue to be. And that's only gonna that's only gonna continue as a, that's not gonna get better with the next generation. That's only that chasm is gonna keep growing. Um, so I think it's a you have to come and then the second struggle is okay. We have lost this. We have irrevocably lost to this. Most of us don't speak uh, the language our parents spoke. Um, so we have to acknowledge what we've lost. And then to think of, like, what are we gaining in return? Oh, fuck. That's no good. Um, so I think that's the second trauma. Realizing that what we came into <laughs> is not that great. Um, that we were sold a, 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 a somewhat hollow bill of goods here. 
Um, so I think that's where this whole like like resurgent, you know, um, re- reclamation of heritage comes from. Uh, just being like, oh shit, this mm-hmm. is this sucks. I'm, I kind of want want some something else. Where was I going with this? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're talking, yeah. So anni- like feeling irrelevant, the fear of annihilation, the fear that you know, um, you know, your 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 descendants will just uh, will be kind of lost in the sea. Right. Uh, They won't look like you. They won't speak. They won't like the same foods you like the same, you know, they won't have familiar with the language that you speak. Uh, I think that's a very legitimate fear. Um, And there's no easy answer to coming because, you know, we're, we're it. Mm hmm. Um, on the yeah. other hand, you know, I think there is a growing power that uh, that I've that I've been seeing, um, you know, especially with these uh, these anti-Asian attacks. Um, by and large, you know, the response has been very uniform, very, very uh, strong, very unwavering. The exceptions have been few and far between, I think. Uh, so there is a lot of unity in that in in that baseline sentiment that I'm seeing. Um and if the next if the next uh, frontier, uh, the next enemy is Asia, so specifically China, and you know, um, and then of course you know all of Asia will reorient around that uh, that U.S. China struggle. Um, we actually turn kind of significant. I think the diaspora becomes a lot more significant in a conflict like that, um, and it's going to be tough because oh, definitely. It's not, it, um, so like uh, like 25 million people, right? More or less of Asian descent across the United States and Canada. Uh, I mean, we're not going to internment camps again. That's just not going to happen. It's a big mm-hmm. enough population that uh, the worry of being just snuffed out isn't quite a valid one, I think. Uh, it's big enough to be a real thorn in uh, in these countries' sides. One that can't be ignored. So in a, if in a growing, you know, in a growing conflict with China, I think we actually wield quite a bit of power in this. Uh, like Japanese internment. Um, Japanese internment was 120,000 people. We're talking like millions of people now. So that same policy will not be reenacted again. Um, I know some people who are, you know, a little, it's kind of in the back of their minds, but I don't think that's not going to happen. Um, I, and I think Asians are very integrated into the society. We, we complain about that shit all the time. We are embedded. We have more power than we think collectively. Um, like TurboVax guy, I think, uh, I think he was, he was really onto something. He, he, he hit it right on the, he hit the nail right on the head, uh, when he took TurboVax down, right. To mm-hmm. say, you know, fuck you. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to show you what it means if you attack if you attack me and my people i'm going to withdraw my uh my voluntary participation in in this shit and you are going to feel the effects uh collectively we have we have power in that regard mm-hmm. um so yep. um so i don't have much to say except uh, i think it's gonna get i i don't think it's i i I think it's going to get more intense, more heated, more crazy in the coming years. I think Turchin himself, the, the Atlantic article, uh, he's basically saying, you know, anticipate five, maybe 10 years of intense chaos because we're right on that tipping. We're right on that edge. 
uh, the empire is crested. It is not an optimistic. Uh, he is not like an optimist. Yeah. In fact, in 2010, um, he was the one who foresaw 2020 uh, as as like some turning point. And uh, my God, was he right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he. I hope he cracked open a big bottle of really nice whiskey. Um, yeah. I should ask him for some like stock tips or or lottery number advice. Uh, maybe maybe he would know that. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, I guess if we're talking about like what what's going to happen next, then I mean, he's predicting five to ten years of intense chaos, um, and I think I'm going to agree with him there. Um, he talks about moments like these are cyclical. Even the decline is cyclical. It'll it'll um, you'll have incremental improvements and then uh, a downslide, and then a bit of an incremental improvement and downslide. So it's not a it's not like we're just going to go straight to hell right away. There's going to be little little uh, hills and valleys on the way down. So there's a so I mean there's a chance to still live an okay life and things could be okay for a little while. Um, I think his point, and which I agree with, and I think this this actually handles a bit of American neurosis. I think uh, he's basically saying, you know, all all civilizations are forged in conflict, um, and this is not this is not a value judgment. This is a simply a statement of what is. Uh, like Russia would not have emerged as a country with a unified people culture. Um, as society without the threat of the Mongols and the Tatars, and vice versa oh, as yeah. well. Um, all all people of all cultures in the world right now uh, are there because of conflict. Nobody was just there in a in a bubble. Um, these are all identities forged as a result of being in conflict with the, some other party and then having to come up with an identity that unifies and uh, that unifies binds and then ultimately um, uh, serves them in return. Um, so with the downfall, mm-hmm. I think for the U.S., it was the downfall of the Soviet Union. There simply was no comparable power for about, you know, the majority of our lifetimes, like you and me. Um, and you see that, you see that, you see America kind of unravel because of that. Um, I think it's a deep neurosis, feeling rootless, um, utterly without, you know, vision or purpose. Uh, this is a big. Uh, this is a big topic we cover in like white collar work and stuff. But I think it's a kind of a societal malaise too, not having that kind of unified principle. Um, like who are we going to fight against? Uh, now it got to the it got to the point where uh, they had to manufacture an enemy to go to go have a uh, to go have to try to drum up some fake sense of unified purpose, which didn't end up working. Um, it just got, uh, it was just used as a shield to continue hollowing out the country. Like a lot of social uh, good, uh, a lot of the, like the Civil Rights Act, a lot of labor laws, um, uh, some of the big uh, left leftist wins of the 60s and 70s happened because uh, the U.S. was in conflict with the Soviet Union, didn't want to look bad. The space race happened because of conflict with Soviet Union you eliminate the conflict and it just dissolves into decadence and decay. And we're seeing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if the next, if the next one up is China, uh, I think people are being pretty savvy about leveraging that. Um, I caught the, I caught the little clip of, you know, uh, Buttigieg, um, 
being like, oh, fuck no, I'm not going to deal. I'm not going to, I'm not okay with the Chinese having good rail. No, that's not happening on my watch. I I mean, it's, it's depressing because you know where it's going to lead, but I, but you can also tell like what they're trying to do with that. They're trying to leverage that, that civilizational conflict to force improvement domestically. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and whereas in the past those frontiers were were physical, you had to be right up against them. I mean, U.S. and China, there's like a whole ocean that separates us. But so you, you gotta you gotta gin up that controversy, and you know we'll, we'll see where that goes. Uh, we, we are coming up on time now, so we, we should wrap it up soon. Um, any any closing thoughts? I just want to recommend this book to to all our, our to all our listeners. It, it does provide a good just context of you know why things are and just kind of like what to expect and it i think one of the things that would help is what you see in america like why are they doing this and it, it makes sense it's like this is time-tested stuff that everybody tries to do you know whether it's creating an enemy to try to create a greater sense of uh group cohesion or you know why it or why are all these like elite people trying to snipe at each other over pointless remarks well that's just that's just because there's too many of them and there's not enough jobs to go around just like how back in like the 14th century there weren't enough lands for all these sons of nobles you know it's the same shit uh yeah i mean so like elite overproduction so like you know um too many nobles having too many kids and not enough land and resources to go around uh population go get spiraling out of control um wages being pressed down as a result yeah Mm -hmm. so rent seeking going up wages depressing um uh, I think the closing thought is uh, we haven't seen shit yet. Um, <laughs> I think it's going to get a lot more intense because um, all the factors that he's listing as uh, elements of uh, social uh, fomenters of chaos, um, we ha- we tick off all the boxes. Um, yeah, everything. Mass inequality spiked last year. Um, yeah. We have atomization of society. Atomization uh, of society. This- just like detachment of like just everyday people, especially elite people from the, the highest callings of national service, like military, like nobody has any connection with, with the military anymore. Not that, that we should, but it's, it's it, like you send all these people, you talk this shit about, oh, we're going to take back these islands or take back the like South China Sea, but you have no stake in it personally. And you know, that's, yeah, that's I a, mean, one it's of the telltale signs because, of a declining empire. Yeah. We're back to feudalism where uh, the children of the poor are conscripted to fight the wars of the rich. Yeah. So you get poor kids who signed up for the army guarding oil wells in Syria for Chevron. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's, it's absolutely insane right now. Um, the only, the only thing is that, you know, nothing is forever. I think is the takeaway here. It's a pretty, it's a pretty Buddhist philosophy. Like they just, it's just it's things are just going to happen. You got to have to just be aware and just take care of yourself and just prepared for it. Um, I think being just aware is a good step. I'm not sure. I think uh, I think a lot of I, I think way fewer Asians are in denial about this. I think that's what the unified. Uh, that's what I think that's what what heart heartened me about the unified response to to the crimes, the anti-Asian crimes that are going down. And like we've been pretty as a whole, pretty clear headed about where that's coming from and why. Um, I don't see a lot of like, oh, hey, don't don't worry about it. It's not not a big deal. You know, blah blah blah. I haven't seen too much of that, so I think people are picking that up. Um, so that 
that makes me feel good that people are at least uh, watching um, and being aware of what's going on. So um, yeah, that's got to mean hey, something. If it, yeah, if if great societies are forged out of conflict, hey, Asia America is in conflict right now. Uh, you know, not with each other, but you know, against an outside force. Hey, may, maybe this is our our forging event. I don't know. That's like, I think that's a the the most optimistic thing I can take away from this. So, um, yeah. Uh, unless you got anything else to say, I, I think we can close out this episode. Do you have anything? Um, no. I mean, we can either go for another two hours, or we can just stop right here. <laughs> so, I think this is a good overview. Please read the book. Uh, we didn't do it justice. Um, just nothing's going to. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot a to go theory. into it. Um, I've I've started listening or, or yeah, listening to like YouTube history things just because it, it'll just get you fascinated about all the all the all the stuff people do um over the years you know many many years of human history so it, it is at least as i said very accessible very entertaining yeah uh, I read and it nothing's quickly. new yeah um if it's like oh mm-hmm. this is unprecedented nothing i think that's what reading history more and more has has made me realize nothing's actually that new yeah absolutely not yeah so i think it gave me a lot of comfort and kind of being able to just <laughs> accept that uh that uh things are going to happen um if you liked where you were in america uh i I, you're not guaranteed to stay there i think it's good to be prepared for that if you didn't like where america was at that's also going to change because it just has to um Mm -hmm. and the forces of history the wheel of history just is turning so if you didn't like america or if you did like america all that's about to change um Mm -hmm. so Yep. Tune in next time. (laughs) Thank you for listening. The book is War and Peace and War by Peter Turchin. And as I said, tomorrow, uh, which is April 13th, we're going to do our first live stream at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I will be there. Jess will be there. A bunch of others will be there. So, yeah, hopefully we'll see you there. Our bonus will be up for all our Patreons. And then we'll be back next week with another free episode. We hope you enjoyed this. Have a good day, afternoon, or night whenever you're listening to this. All right. Bye, everyone.